turn of a revolution in the art of science fiction filmmaking, the classic Saga of the Apes. These are the most popular and successful films of their kind ever conceived. They began a new motion picture tradition, and they end beyond your imagination. The classic Saga of the Apes, rated PG. 20th Century Fox wants you to go ape. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours, the movie review program. I'm Paul Spataro, and today I have a somewhat different episode for you. Right now, I am joined by Mr. Rich Handley. Hi, Rich. Hello. We'll talk a moment about you and your background, but I just want to explain what's going on here. Uh, we're on to talk War for the Planet of the Apes, and we are going to be joined by Zaki Hassan, who has been my co-host on the Rise and Dawn for the Planet of the Apes uh, episodes. But Zachy is going to be a little delayed, and I took this opportunity to get Rich on early so we could talk a little Planet of the Apes in general, uh, because uh, as you'll hear, Rich has a little bit of the Planet of the Apes pedigree. Uh, and uh, he and I actually have met, and it's kind of interesting, I thought, the way this uh, has come about. And uh, I'll touch on that for a second before I get you to give me uh, your, your Planet of the Apes history. Because we sure. have met, I think, on three occasions. I think twice at Eternal Con and once at the Fort Hamilton Comic Con last year. And on at least two out of three of those occasions, we engaged in a conversation. And I looked at your book and I really wanted to get it, but budgetary reasons kind of get me from it, which I apologize now because I wish I had it. Uh, <laughs> and then I heard you on Zachy's show, and uh, Nostalgia Theater, that is, Talking Planet right. of the Apes, and I said, boy, that guy sounds familiar. And I looked <laughs> you up on Facebook, Facebook, and I saw your picture, and I said, okay, I do remember that is the guy who I spoke to, because I thought it might be. And I sent you a request, and uh, you were either very kind or just, uh, you know, actually being honest when you said you looked at my picture and actually remembered speaking to me as well. Uh, so that was, I think it's just kind of cool that, that, you know, we've met in the past, and here we are again, to get, to, back together again. Absolutely. I, at those, I remember those conventions well, and, uh, and I, w I was being honest, not kind, although I guess I was trying, I mean, I'm, I try to be kind, but I was, <laughs> I, 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 I was being honest. Uh, I remember at those conventions that there were, I, um, <laughs> not a lot of people engaged us in interesting and long conversations. A lot of people came up quickly and left. So the, 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 those who did, I remembered them well. Uh, because those, those for me, were the highlights of, of being at conventions in the first place. When you're sitting at a, when you're manning a booth and um, you're not a salesman. You know, you're a writer. You're trying to be salesman-like. It can be a little daunting. So when people engage in, in interesting conversation, it stands out because it it, it makes being there worth it. it. It makes you walk away going, ah, I found my people. And it just makes me regret not buying it even more because <laughs> I feel like you earned <laughs> a, a, a sale there. Oh, thanks. I I. I, I I don't look at it that way, but thank you. <laughs> well, you know, let me let me uh, get on the record here. Why don't, you, why don't you tell people of your? I was going to say book, but books, and okay. uh, and what you've written, and then let's get into where they're available because I am still interested in obtaining copies. Okay. Uh, yeah, there's um, a number of them. It, it goes back to I believe 2008 when I had written a book called Timeline of the Planet of the Apes. The 
books are still available on Amazon. And what each one is is a, a comprehensive look at Planet of the Apes, uh, two perspectives, a timeline, a, 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 a chronology, an encyclopedia, uh, covering everything, the, the movies, the TV shows, all the comic books, the novelizations, the scripts, the video games. Um, frankly, it was <laughs> kind of uh, probably anal retentive, my, my approach. Uh, but uh, I'm looking back, I have covered a bit too much. But... Um, but they were fun books to write, and I uh, immersed myself in what I consider one of the greatest stories I've ever written. So I, it was it was the quintessential labor of love. I, I, I every time I went back in to watch this stuff and read it again as research, um, I put research in air quotes. It was real. I really didn't see it as research so much as having fun. Uh, after that, after that, um, I uh, co-edited a pair of books. First was called uh, the Sacred Scrolls Comics on the Planet of the Apes, and the other one, the follow-up, was called Bright Eyes Ape City. Uh, I'm drawing. Oh, Bright Eyes Ape City: Examining the Planet of the Apes Mythos. I really wish I could lay claim to to the name Bright Eyes Ape City, but that was actually the genius of my co-editor uh, Joseph Baranato. He came up with that name. I would love to be able to say it was me, but uh, those two books were essay books, essay anthologies, and uh, each one contains somewhere between like 15 and 20 essays by a lot of different prominent essayists and writers covering different aspects of the So, uh, examining specific uh, specific films or looking at things like uh, real-world chimpanzees in, in, in their native environment or comic book predecessors, ape-based stories in comics before Planet of the Life that sort of thing, different, different um, More recently, uh, I've worked on, I'm working on a series of books for Boom Studios. They're reprinting all of the old Marvel Planet of the Apes comics, and uh, it's going to be at least four books, and for each book, uh, I'm helping in an, in an uh, edit, or a, uh, just an editing type, uh, capacity, but also writing supplemental materials, introductory afterwards, that sort of thing. And finally, the, uh, probably probably my proudest moment is a book called Tales from Forbidden Zone, which came out last January for Titan Books. I edited it with uh, Jim Beard, a long-time friend of mine. And that's a short story anthology, the first uh, licensed short story anthology set in the Planet of the Apes. It's, and I say first, but still to this day, the only. Um, hmm. Uh, featuring short stories spanning about 2,000 years of history. And uh, it involved both the movies and TV shows, which that last part blew my mind. Because I, I, I couldn't believe we were being allowed to continue the, uh, the continue the story of, of the television. So that was a lot. And uh, I think I think that, that that's enough pedigree establishing. It's turning into the rich show, so... <laughs> That's all right. I have no problem with that. Uh, I think it's kind of impressive, and I think I'm going to have to get on reading some of this stuff. So, oh, you know, I, I I feel remiss that I hadn't gotten it yet. But, uh, shame on you, Paul. Shame yes, on you. Shame on me. It's not the first thing I've done that's shameful, though. Anyway, uh, yeah. I mean, let me let me ask you about your background a little bit. Like, when was the first time that you saw, I guess, the original Planet of the Apes movie? Well, uh, like you, I'm from New York, and when I, I grew up 
uh, watching what was called the 4:30 movie. I'm I'm going to assume you're probably familiar with it. Absolutely, Channel Seven and, every every day of the week. In fact, I think you and I discussed that at one of the convent. Probably the, one of the, the first or second convention we met at. Now that I'm it's, suddenly I have this weird sense of deja vu. So, uh, but I, I I was addicted to the to the 4:30 movie back in the 70s, and I was born in '68, so. Figure the time that the 4:30 movie aired. I was probably ranging from like eight to twelve, maybe seven to eleven, somewhere in that age range. And uh, for those, since this is obviously not just a New York audience, 4:30 movie was a daily film showcase, in which uh, sometimes they had a general theme like science fiction, but they would also do things like Godzilla Week, uh, uh, Charles Heston Week. Oddly enough, Gidget Week, which to me always seemed like a case of, you know, one of these things is not like the other. I mean, I, Gidget <laughs> Week, in the midst of all these science fiction and, 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 uh, and horror and fantasy. But, um, I, maybe some people have nightmares about Gidget. Maybe you probably might <laughs> uh, But uh, they, uh, they, my favorite was always uh, Planet of the Apes Week. And uh, although the, the Channel, Channel 7 did it kind of funny, they... Uh, they ran the first four movies and split the first one in half, which meant that they left out Battle for the Planet of the Apes, which they then, later in the year, would run during, I think it was Science Fiction Week. I think that's when they ran it. Well, if you, if you think about it, except for the ones, like, Battle was was fairly, I guess, I don't remember the running time on each one of them. Yeah. But you figure each one was probably somewhere in the hour and a half to hour and 45 the minute range. Yeah, the first one was about too close to two hours. If and they had to run a lot me. of commercials. <laughs> yeah, so they were showing this in an hour and a half format. Yeah. A movie that's about probably about an hour and 45 minutes long. Exactly. And they're cutting another, say, 20 minutes out for commercials. Right, exactly. So they, they're taking a movie that's, you know, an hour and a half to hour and 45 minutes and showing an hour and 10 minutes of it. <laughs> yep. And, and that, that format really did a disservice to a lot of these movies, but at the time they were showing them, and I'm I'm about five years older than you, uh, it didn't really click with me that they were doing that. It was more when they uh, when when the when VHS became popular, and I would record movies off of television, and I remember the one I specifically remember was Dirty Harry, recording it off on the 4:30 movie, and it was down to an hour and ten minutes, <laughs> and when I was able to get an unedited copy of it, in comparison, it was like, oh my god, they butchered this movie. I had that reaction with uh, with the original Star Trek. I grew up a Star Trek fanatic, but I was watching it on Channel 11 every single day and not realizing that there were scenes missing. So uh, when when um, CBS, uh, I think it was CBS Video, when they had those, uh, those two episode uh, box sets of, of, of the TV series. Yes, I remember and, those. Uh, yeah, and I so I subscribed to that, and as each one showed up in the mail each month, I was a person who religiously watched the show, and each each episode showed up, and I had you know good eight ten minutes of scenes I'd never seen before, and I remember thinking, oh my god, what did they do to this show? Yeah, <laughs> but it makes sense because you know you have to pay the bills when you're uh, when you when you're when you're running when you're running stories, and 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 uh, you know like you said it was a disservice. I think it was both a service and a disservice because it, it it was definitely a disservice to the people who who, who made those movies, um, but it also exposed you and me and countless other individuals to films we might not have otherwise seen. Anybody who's in your viewing audience who's under thirty will not really appreciate this, but 
you know, back then, if you wanted to see a movie, you either had to wait for it to show up on one of the five channels that existed, um, or you had to wait for some theater in your area to run it again. So the idea of a daily film showcase was just amazing to me. And it, looking back, yeah, I cringe at the cuts that were made, but I think of how many films it exposed me to that I might not have otherwise seen. Um, I don't know that, you know, if I ever would have seen, for example, I mean, until the advent of, of HBO, then we would have seen everything. But um, up until HBO became became uh, commonplace, I, I wonder would I have ever seen The Omega Man, for example. The mm -hmm. 430 movie introduced me to that one. Um, my great love for Godzilla came out of Godzilla Week. Right, right. Yeah, that's 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 all fair, and yeah. I think I, I I agree with you what you're saying, but I think that that format, while it may have been the best economic format for them, comparing what they paid for the movie and what they could get in commercial time and what their average viewing audience uh, would sit through, right. uh, I think for people like you and I, I think we may be a little bit atypical, and people who listen to the show would would fall into that same category. In that we are movie fans. You are and not the first person to call me atypical. I just want that on the record. <laughs> but I, I think we, we would have a greater ability to sit if they had made it a two-hour format as opposed to an hour and a half. You know, I, I suspect that that, was, that format was designed for two, two purposes. One, for children, you know, and by children I don't mean necessarily very small, but kids coming home from school they have enough time to get their homework done, and they get enough time to watch a movie before eating dinner. Right. I think that that's part of and the that was me. of that. And yeah. I also think, you know, uh, stay-at-home moms, which was a much more common thing back then, you know, who would have a TV set in the kitchen and uh, be making dinner and taking care of chores and whatever. Uh, you know, like, I think that was what it was designed to serve as opposed to the movie fan. Uh, and just inadvertently uh, and unintentionally, uh, fed into movie fans such as us and like you say gave us exposure to movies we probably would not have seen otherwise yeah you, you just described my house by the way when, when i when i was a kid uh, my mom is a is a major science fiction fan and i, I get most of my manias from her so uh, i was a baby when the original star trek was still on the air for example she she watched it so she says i watched it the original series but i was a year old in its final season but my, my playpen was in the living room and uh so I, I technically saw it um but in any case so she and i used to watch the 430 movie together and i remember when i was a child that when when planet of the apes week and science fiction week came along um those two weeks i would make sure to have my homework done as you described before 430 and then the two of us would make popcorn and plant ourselves in front of the TV and this became a bonding thing for us. And it, it, it is to this day, you know, so um, we're both a good deal older now, but we, we still geek out over science fiction films that we watched when I was uh, 10 years old, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that is cool. Now, the original movie, you would have been too young. Uh, I'm just enough older than you. That it I, came out the I, year I was born. Yeah, so. and I saw it in the theater that year. So yeah, mm -hmm. so 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 it, it was definitely the 4:30 movie that exposed me to Planet of the Apes because uh, by the time that by the time the last movie hit, I was still like five or six years old, seven. Yeah, I, I was I was still a little kid when the last movie came out. I sadly did not see any of the movies. I saw all five of them on 4:30 movie, uh, and then I bought them on VHS, and then I bought them on DVD, and then I bought them on. Uh, I don't. I, I try not to double dip a lot, but that was one series. 
Yeah. Well, that, uh, see, I saw the original, I remember, I have very vivid memories. My dad uh, took my brother and I to see the original movie when it came out. Uh, and then they, with, with every new release, they would re-release the original. Yeah. And they would do a double feature or a triple feature. And, and they had the uh, Go Ape posters for that. Yes. I, well, I specifically, I, I have very, very strong memories. My brother and I still laugh uh, uh, a great deal. And I've mentioned on the show in the past, uh, when they when Battle came out, after it had its initial run, they did the all-day marathon of all five movies. Yeah. Uh, and, did you and do that? My brother and I went to the Nostrand Theater. Uh, my brother is two and a half years older than I am, and we uh, we we had a history of fighting back then, <laughs> as many as many siblings with that kind of age difference would. Uh, what brothers and brothers who fight? Come on, <laughs> it's amazing we're as close as we are now. When I look back on some of it, but uh, my you know my mother gave us money for the movie and snacks and dropped us off at the theater. And I'm thinking she just kind of said, ah, I have the day free, you know, and somewhere around the middle of Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, we had enough of each other and we started throwing punches (laughs) and and we were thrown out of the theater and came home, whatever, two hours early. And I just remember my mom's face. So you were a battle on the Planet of the Apes. Yes. I remember my mom's face (laughs) when we walked in the door like, oh man, what are they doing home? (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, I've I've seen... You know, your battle... Hmm? Oh, I was just going to say, your, your battle on the Planet of the Apes was probably more exciting than a bunch of school buses. <laughs> I, you know, I, I I still love that movie. <laughs> no, I, I joke around, but I, I'm, I am very forgiving with all five of those films. I, I um, When I hear people say, you know, rank them best to worst, I say, uh, you know, that's not possible. They're all perfect. But the truth is, they're really not. Oh, no, they're not perfect. They're it's not. And Nobody yet I don't care because I, I love all five of them. I, I love Battle. I mean, yeah, okay, it has a budget of like $2 and a pack of gum. But uh, but without Battle, we wouldn't have characters like Virgil and Mandemus. And to me, that would be a, a huge a huge loss. So I'm okay with the fact that it's a low budget. I mean, yeah, it, it is kind of funny when you see that a battle for the Planet of the Apes is fought between like two dozen apes and a school bus and a bike. But, you know... <laughs> Putting that aside, it, it uh, I, I think there's a lot. I think that film, much like Beneath, is a lot better than people give it credit for. And, yes, uh, I agree. Yeah, uh, and uh, so you know, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I can I can ignore, I can pretend I don't see its flaws, but I know they're there. <laughs> well, uh, you know, a while back, uh, my friend Andrew Leyland and I did a commentary on Battle for the Planet of the Apes. They, they did, uh, I, you know, you and I talked before we started recording that. Uh, I had done uh, on my show Back to the Bins, which is a comic book review show, we had done a Planet of the Apes month. And that was in conjunction with the whole network that we're on, the Two True Freaks network, doing a Planet of the Apes month. And the Planet and the Two True Freaks proper show was doing commentaries. And Scott Gardner and uh, Chris Honeywell, who are the main guys on that show, uh, didn't really want to do battle. They did all the others. They just really didn't want to do battle. So Andrew Leyland and I did it. And uh, I, wish I re- knew you back then. I would have done it. <laughs> but yeah, if I knew you then, I would have grabbed you for it. And it would have been the three of us instead of the two of us. But uh, I, uh, you know, I reposted that on this feed uh, a couple of months ago, and uh, I, I listened to it myself. And I, st- I still think, you know, we our, our appreciation for the movie came through despite our willingness to point out the flaws. 
And to yeah. me, that's that's critical in evaluating a movie like that. Like if if you're just going to be blind to the flaws, you know, you, you jokingly said they're all you know they're all perfect. Uh, right. If you truly <laughs> believed that. <laughs> then I don't think you're qualified to give an honest opinion. It doesn't make your opinion any less ve- less valid, but it doesn't make it something that the average person could relate to. Well, you know, I, what it comes, you have to be able to to you have to be able to dissect the things that you love because if you if you don't, then you end up being someone who uh, I I would have trouble taking seriously. You know, if someone says, for example that they absolutely loved every Star Wars film completely. There are no, you know, I would say, so you see nothing wrong with them. You, Jar Jar didn't ignore you, annoy you at all. No, not at all. All right, that's, you know, you're right to your opinion, but I don't think that we're on the same plane when it comes to discussing it. So I know what you mean. Yeah, I, I have a friend who's a huge Bruce Springsteen fan. And I always used to joke around with him that if a new album came out, there was no point in saying to him, how's this album? Because he's going <laughs> to say it's great. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter what he comes out with. He could come out with an album of anything. My friend's going to think he's great. It's great. And that's fine. It, like I said, it doesn't invalidate his opinion. It just makes it one that I can't rely on for me personally. I'm like that with uh, with Rush. I'm a big Rush fan. And a friend of mine uh, swears that Roll the Bones is a great album. And I, I say, I, I can't get behind that album. Rush with, with rap in the middle of its songs doesn't make sense to me. So, yeah, I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm with you on that. Well, anything with rapping, it doesn't make sense to me. But that's, yeah, well, there's that too. That, that <laughs> might be a generational thing. I don't thing want to, don't want to alienate your, any of your viewing audience who likes rap, though. So, well, I, I often say, you know, I, I love music, but as far as I'm concerned, there've been only a handful of songs written since 1990. <laughs> but that's that's me personally. Uh, yeah, I forgot where I forgot where I was going. <laughs> oh, sorry. I, <laughs> no, oh, yeah. So, but but I, I'm talking back to the uh, to the commentary we did on battle i do i remember us actually you know getting a very good laugh out of the battle scene when they show the same tree blowing up like five times it's a very resilient tree yes uh you know and it, it just shows you how, how low their special effects budget was I, I don't think you were that far off when you described it earlier uh you know it, but that said as we dissected it we found a lot of themes in the movie that were worth talking about and that, yeah. you know, were, were making us say, well, what about this? What do you think about that? And I think that's probably the most important thing in a movie. You know, the visuals are critical, but even more critical is the story itself. Because if you're not going to have something that's going to be thought provoking and entertaining, uh, you know, then you just have a pretty movie and who needs that? Uh, you know, I, I can go to the museum and see that. Right, and and the thing is, there are a ton of movies that look wonderful, but you, there's really nothing to walk away with. There's no, there's no, there's no substance to it, you know. And I, I uh, those movies are fun for ten minutes, and then you don't care anymore. Yeah, those are the ones that you carry over. You know, the, the ones that have a little bit more meat to them, the ones that you do want to watch over and over again. Or at least that's been my uh, my take on things. I'm totally with you on that, and yeah. and that that to me applies to all five of the originals. You know, faults and all. I, I um. I, I can watch Battle and, and enjoy it more and think about it more than I would with more modern films that may have been better uh, written or better acted or better had, had far better production values because I can connect with, with aspects of Battle, whereas I might not have connected with those other movies. Yep, I agree. So now let's let's jump in, and I guess you know at this point you'd be getting old enough uh, to start appreciating it more. In between Battle for the Planet of the Apes 
and the Tim Burton movie, which we'll touch on in a moment. Uh, you know, we had comic books, we had a TV series, we had a cartoon series. How much were you into all of that? You know, I'm, I'm old enough now that the, the, the timeline in my head is a little obscure, the real world timeline. Um, when I when I was, uh, I, I had the, um, the movies and I would watch them often. And when Sci-Fi Channel picked up two TV shows, uh, back in, I think it was the 90, late 90s, I guess it would have been, uh, I had no, I knew they had existed, but I hadn't watched them. And I, I sat and, and, and watched the TV show and the, the uh, cartoon and was kind of blown away by them, but both by the fact that they had issues uh, and the fact that they were a hell of a lot more fun than I was expecting them to be. Although, although the cartoon series voice acting was the audio equivalent of running your nails down a chalkboard repeatedly, but uh, but the still but the writing was pretty good, and once I got once I got into um, once I got into watching the TV show, I became a little more uh, a little more interested in tracking down the peripherals. But one year, my wife and I went to uh, Toronto, and then the following year to California. On our, on our anniversaries, and back then, when when there were comic shops on, you know, every every town had comic shops every couple of miles. Unlike now, where they're where they're almost uh, the dodo at this point. Mm -hmm. um, I would always make a point whenever we would visit a new place of checking out comic shops, uh, because I was a diehard science fiction comic collector. But I hadn't started collecting Planet of the Apes at that point, so we went to this one place in Toronto, and following Los Angeles, and each place. They had a, a bin, uh, which was common back then, and in both places, I found a bunch of old Planet of the Apes magazines, some from Marvel and some from uh, Malibu. And uh, I basically bought the entire stock so that I'd have something to read on the phone. <laughs> and uh, I became hooked. I was, I was amazed that there were all these great... And, and some not so great Planet of the Apes stories that had somehow escaped me that I dive into because there's only you can watch the movies over and over again. But you're still only watching five stories. You can watch the TV show over and over again. But, you know, you're still only watching a dozen plus episodes. And, and, and so the idea that, that there were several dozen stories that I had not been exposed to kind of blew my mind. And, and that that started a what in the last twenty plus years has been a major obsession of mine. And, uh, and since then, I've tracked down everything, um, and I enjoy them so much. They, they, the, the old, the old Malibu comic story tend to get dragged on a lot of. I think that's partly due to the artwork, but I, I much like watching Battle for the Planet of the Apes. If you can get past the cause of the Malibu, comics, there's a lot of there's a lot to enjoy about them. Yeah, there are also a couple of Jar Jar Binks like ones, but there's a lot to enjoy about them. those old Marvel comics, though. Man, those are those are brilliant. There's some seriously beautiful artwork, some amazing writing in those old Marvel comics, uh, and I'll tell you, it, it is a huge thrill to be involved in working with because uh, those are forgotten gems, you know. And there are so many Planet of the Apes fans now that uh, are being exposed to that. that I, I just think I think it's amazing that we live at a time when all these old comics are coming back to the forefront. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah. Assuming, I'm assuming you, you know you're very familiar with the Marvel series. Right? I, you know, 
my my experience now, I, I don't want to uh, overstate it or understate it. Uh, I you know as I said, I, I love the original five movies. I've seen every movie in, in its theatrical release and all of that. Uh, when the original comic was coming out, the Marvel comic, I was reading the I read the comic whatever I think that was eleven issues, uh, which was adaptations and the like. Uh, I didn't really get to the to the magazine level when it first came out. That was something I was exposed to more later. Uh, and a lot of the stuff I came, I came to the party a little bit late, which sounds, you know, like we may have a little bit of a similar experience there. Only yeah. I, I haven't been as comprehensive as you. I haven't gotten a hold of everything, but I've read a good deal of it. Uh, and again, uh, I would just point everybody, uh, if they have an interest in it, we did do the comic book Planet of the Apes month. It's several years ago now, but uh, they're all available on the Back to the Bins feed on twotruefreaks.com. And uh, I, I was pretty proud of those shows because we, we picked some mostly random books. Uh, I think one week we did Marvel. One week we did uh, Mr. Comics, that one. Yeah, they did a miniseries, Revolution on the Planet of the Apes. That's wonderful. Yes, we enjoyed that. Uh, we did Boom Studios one week. I don't remember what we did the other week. It may have been Malibu. Uh, and we did, you know, some random books. We would do three, four, maybe five books in a, in a particular episode and go over them. And uh, there, I, I agree with you. There's some real gems out there. There were some silly things or some things that, are just, that just seem, uh, uh, you know, a little too obvious, uh, not, not as creative as they could be. But, yeah. there's, but, it, but if you're willing to weed through them a little bit, you can really find some stuff that's great. I remember... I remember reading one in particular where it, it took place during the time that Conquest of the Planet of the Apes is, is taking place. And uh, about, about a writer and, and, and the and ape management publications? Uh, I think it may have been. All, all I, what I remember about it is, again, it's a little vague, is that they were showing the actions of the apes who weren't directly involved in what we saw in the film. Yeah. And it's from Malibu, right? I think so, yeah. And I just yeah. remember being kind of chilling. Well, quitting time. <laughs> that sounds right. I think you. I think yeah. I, I think you're hitting on the right one. But I remember being kind of chilling when I read it. Yes, it's it's my favorite issue. It's funny that you bring that one up. It's my favorite issue of that series. <laughs> okay, so yeah, so I guess you know, I, I guess we we are uh, we're basically the same guy, <laughs> except you've you've lived a more fun life as far as Planet of the Apes work goes. But for those who haven't read it and are looking to track it down, it's issue 19, and I highly recommend it. It's from Malibu Comics, and uh, the story is about a writer at Ape Management Publications. He he basically is the um, the PR arm uh, for Governor for Governor Breck, and and, and, um, and uh, puts out pamphlets, things like how to train your ape, how to you know discipline your ape, and so forth. And uh, in the and, and the story takes place inside of Conquest, and you can tell where in the movie it is based on what the characters are doing. You'll hear announcements over the PA that you heard in the film, and so forth. And uh, and this 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 uh, this main character finds himself unexpectedly unexpectedly embroiled in the events of the film as the apes around him are reacting to the rebellion. One of my favorite scenes in that is the revelation that this main character is actually in the movie. Do you remember this? No, no, I don't. He's elaborate. He's, he's the character who, in the movie, uh, has a shoeshine ape put polish on his foot. Okay, I remember that. <laughs> because at one point, this character uh, uh, 
Carson McCormick, I believe his name is. He he's, he goes and sits at a shoe shine place, and a a, a shoe shine ape puts polish on his foot, which basically says this is the much like the Star Wars expanded universe, where every single person who ever appeared on screen has a backstory. Um, this issue is the story of the guy who got polish on his foot, <laughs> but it's a. Uh, it's a really wonderful story, and and this is an example of what comics can the Planet of the Apes comics can do when done right, which is take an aspect of the films and and, and turn it on its end, give you a, a totally different perspective than you originally had. Uh, who would think that you could take this one little gag from the movie about shoe polish and turn it into what is arguably Malibu's greatest issue? Hmm. Yeah, it, it is. Well, and that's that's where I talked about. Some are more creative, some are less creative. This was more creative. Yeah. So okay, so like I said, you, you, you have, your experience with these is also later than mine. Um, I've never been a devotee of the cartoon or the TV series, and I I felt of late a need to go back and revisit them and see what I think now. Uh, my experience was the TV series was a little too formulaic for what was coming out at the time. Oh, well, it was The Fugitive and The Incredible Hulk. It, yeah. was, it, was, it was basically those two shows, but but take out the green man and put an ape head in. And then the cartoon series, and you commented on the voice actors, uh, it really was, let's take all our stock voice actors that we have and just put them into ape roles. Yeah, and, and, the thing, and so you end up with Fred Flintstone as General Urko, for example. Yes. Now, the thing is, I um I do love the live action TV series, but I but like we said with uh like I said with Battle, it's perfect. No, it's not really. I I uh, I greatly enjoy it, but I would be lying if I said there weren't some serious clunkers and uh, and some moments that make you laugh or head or face palm. But there's a lot to be. First of all, Roddy McDowell is in it, and so is Mark Leonard, and and the two of them elevate the material a lot. Uh. But also, there are some genuinely emotional moments in that show that I think get overlooked as people think about the glut of, uh, you know, what is perceived as the glut of, of Planet of the Apes from the 70s. Although, on, on a different note, I always find it funny when I see people doing retrospectives on Planet of the Apes and they say that, you know, audiences were overwhelmed by Planet of the Apes. The reason the TV show failed, the reason the comic got canceled is that there was an overabundance of apes. And I think there was never an overabundance of apes. I mean, we're, we live at a time right now where there, there are Trek comic, Star Trek comics every single month and Star Trek novels every single month and Star Wars novels and comics every single week, practically. And nobody is saying, oh, there's too much of it. So at a time when we had, you know, two TV shows and a handful of comics, I don't think the audience saw it as too much. I think I think the, the blame is being put on the wrong person, wrong parties as to why these things ultimately were canceled. Well, I, I think. I think we would have gladly continued watching and reading. <laughs> I, I think the, the thought process, honestly, if, if we go to my thought process, and I'm trying to remember, uh, you know, 40 years ago. So, uh, as you say, time has a way of changing your, your memories. Yeah. But if, if I remember the way I kind of thought of it back then, and you got to keep in mind, this is pre-VHS. Right. Uh, I remember having this fantasy in, in, at that time of that, you know, somehow I got a projector and copies of the original films and I could watch them whenever I wanted. So, you know, life eventually led me to that in a different way. But it was a time when they were showing the five movies now fairly often on TV. Uh, you know, like you said, the 430 movie would do Apes Week and that type of thing. Uh, 
I don't know if they had gotten to Apes Week yet, or if it was more or less uh, that they would show them on, you know, ABC, you know, but they were showing them frequently. I, I remember, you know, I remember sitting in front of the TV with the, uh, you know, my cassette recorder and recording the movies. And uh, I think ultimately what it came down to was I preferred to see the original movies over the TV series. I think I would have preferred the series more if it had somehow really tied into the movies better as opposed to kind of being a parallel. Yeah, they're absolutely valid statement. Yep. So that that was really my my thought process because I never totally immersed myself in the TV series, which surprised me because I loved, you know, I loved the, the Apes movies and you would think I would be a prime target for the series. Uh, and again, like I said, I think uh, I'd, I'd like to, uh, I would like to, whatchamacallit, I would like to get, revisit it sometime in the near future and see, you know, how time has changed my opinion. I think uh, time, I think that revisiting now, you may find your opinion softened. It, there's, um, Part of it is nostalgia now, but also part of it is that, uh, you know, we, we, we get older and we look we look back on things and we uh, we see them differently. You know, you you're see you'll be seeing them through the eyes of a person who's in 2018 <laughs> uh, when the world is kind of a crazy place right now. And watching a TV show that's post-apocalyptic may resonate with you more. <laughs> well, I don't want it to resonate that much. I want escapism, <laughs> but but for whatever reason, I do find myself going to uh, these post-apocalyptic worlds anyway to escape. Uh, yeah. But then you know we we had a long gap before uh, we got any real substance after that. Uh, and I remember you know the rumors that there was going to be a Planet of the Apes remake or reboot with Arnold Schwarzenegger oh, yeah. in the lead. There were a whole bunch of them. There was a. Arnold Schwarzenegger was attached, and uh, and um, uh, I'm hanged. So I I heard I had heard. What I'm sorry, you you, you cut out for me a minute. Did you oh. say Tom Hanks? Yeah, I, I had heard rumors at one point that Tom Hanks was going to be the lead. I had heard that Tom Cruise was going to be the lead. It seemed like for a while everybody and their and their uncle was the lead of of the next Planet of the Apes film. I guess whoever the flavor of the month was. was. Yeah, exactly. You know, and there were so many different directors that were being attached to it. And uh, at one point, Roland Emmerich was named. Yeah, I'm so glad that didn't. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, so, so there were there were so many. Uh, you know, I, I look at I look at the, the, the uh, film. I don't think it's as terrible as everybody makes it out. I don't think it was a great film. And but I also see I, I've read some of the some of the scripts that were submitted. Uh, that we're going to be filmed instead of that one. Some of them are just direly bad. And uh, in a weird way, we got a better film than we, we would have if some of the other plans had been uh, there are, there's, there's one script out there that's basically a complete rip-off of the uh, you, You're cutting in and out on me a little bit, Rich. Oh, can you hear me? I can hear you now. You said there was one script out there that was a rip-off of what? Lord of the Rings. <laughs> oh, that, that's I, I can't imagine how you could kind of, how you could do that. It, it, it's uh, it's just there's a character named Aragorn. I mean, it, the whole thing is so stupid, and and it, and so there so there are no matter no matter how bad the Burton film may have been perceived, it could have been a whole lot worse. You know, I, I you know I anxiously awaited the Tim Burton film, and and there's there, I think there's been a retrospective Tim Burton hate. Uh, by a lot of people, and I think I'm a little guilty of this myself. I think Tim Burton was 
uh, you know, kind of people, people were really enjoying what he came out with. And then eventually he kind of oversaturated the market with the Tim Burton style. Yeah. And I think retroactively people started to dislike things that they had previously liked. I, I've seen that happen too. Yeah. So, and I, like I said, I think I'm a little bit of a victim of that myself. Uh, but I remember seeing, you know, when, when the, the new one came out, uh, the, the Burton one, and I saw it. I remember thinking, eh, this isn't bad. It's okay, you know, and, and I hated the ending, I, I have to admit. I really did. I, I thought they never gave you a, a viable ex, you know, reason for why that happened. Yeah, uh, it was stupid. And then it, then it came out on, on DVD, and I watched it with the commentary. Uh, you know, I was willing to give it a shot. And I really thought Burton copped out on the commentary. I, I don't know if you have ever listened to that. I have, but it's been a long time. Because when it got to the ending, he said something to the effect, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, that he had a viable explanation for how this occurred, but he didn't want to voice it at this time because he didn't want to tie the hands of anybody who might do a sequel. Huh. I thought that was an incredible cop-out because, first of all, by the time the DVD came out, we were all aware there was not going to be a sequel. Right. Second of all, how does his commentary become you know, absolute law anyway? You know, if, if he explained it, the, what, what he was thinking at the time, even if they made a sequel, they could change that. They don't have to be obligated to follow it. So that, I thought that was a total cop out. Uh, I don't think he had a. I don't think he had a uh, an absolute plan in mind. I think if they had said we'd like you to do a sequel, he would have been scrambling. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a, it's a little bit of George Lucas there, where he talked about what he had planned out, and yeah, maybe it wasn't quite so planned out, but. Uh, I, you know, we, we eventually did an episode of Is It Jaws on uh, the 2000 Planet of the Apes, and I did it with Chris Honeywell, and we were both of a mind that it wasn't as bad as the reputation said. We didn't think it was a good movie, but, uh, you know, the reputation, and I, I don't know how familiar you are with, with uh, what we do on this show, but eventually we, we rank movies on what I call the Jaws scale, and the Jaws scale does not necessarily correspond to the Jaws movies because uh, I'll explain that in a second. But as far as the Jaws scale goes, Jaws is an absolute classic movie, virtually flawless. Jaws 2 is a very, very solid movie movie worthy of rewatching frequently, uh, just not quite up to the classic level. Jaws 3, watchable, enjoyable, but you know not quite as good as that. And then Jaws 4 is a bad movie. Based yes. on the reputation, uh, and oh, and just let me finish that thought with uh, when we did rank the Jaws movies, uh, Jaws was ranked as Jaws. Jaws 2 was ranked as Jaws 3. Jaws <laughs> 3 and 4 were ranked as Jaws 4. Okay, but uh, but uh, when, when we watched the 2000 Planet of the Apes and uh, gave a review of it, you know, the, the inclination was everybody's going to say this is Jaws 4. It's a horrible, horrible movie. And we both came down, if I remember right, as it's Jaws 3. It's, you know, it's, it's got some moments. It's enjoyable. It's just really not, you know what you'd call a, a solid movie. I, uh, last year I recorded, um, I, I recorded a, uh, behind the scenes documentary for the war for the planet of the apes, Blu-ray. And, um, one of the things that came to mind while I was, while I was doing the interviews for that was that the plant, the, the Tim Burton planet of the apes film is the is the 900 pound gorilla in the room. <laughs> uh, a lot of people, like to pretend it didn't happen, and a lot of people see it as a monster. But if you if you just if you if a person just uh, allows themselves to just put aside 
how frustrated they were when that movie came out. Uh, put aside those preconceptions going in that, you know, they ruined the franchise, they raped my childhood, and all the other histrionics that people tend to say with movies like this. I think there's more to enjoy about it than a lot of people give it credit for. I don't, I don't really think that that's apologism. I mean, I, I freely admit that film has got some major flaws. Every single human character in that movie is, is, is uh, one-dimensional and boring. There's not a single human character in that movie that is interesting. But the film also has Thade and Ari, and I know this is going to be a controversial one, Limbo. I know a lot of people don't like that character. But for me, Thade, Ari, and Limbo are are great characters, particularly Thane. I, I, and I, I genuinely enjoyed the idea of making a chimpanzee the villain instead of a gorilla. I um, agree and, with you there, uh, totally. Yeah, that was a great move. So I, I give them credit for doing something out of the box on that one. That Thane, despite being half the size of the gorillas, was believable as, as a man who, as a being who would who would be accepted as their leader and that 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 says a lot for tim roth um and and for the writing of that character i i see his character as a frustration though because if the if the, that character was so well written what the hell happened to the rest of the movie <laughs> like if, if you're if you can create a character that interesting how is it you can't write a good movie and and um so I, I'm of uh, I'm of very much of, of several minds on that film. There are parts of it where I go, that was pretty good, and there are other parts where I just go, what the hell? Like Limbo trying to, to hawk aspirin on children is is, is cringe inducing, um, you know. But and, and there are other moments that are just awful. And Mark Wahlberg for me, basically is is sleepwalking through that film. But then you get to half, you know, all the actors playing the ape characters, and and they're 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 bringing their A game. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you uh, for the most part. I mean, it's definitely flaws in it, and I don't. Ultimately, I come down on the side of I don't really feel any kind of urge to rewatch it. Um, like I said, I thought it was fairly enjoyable. It had some moments in it, you know, or somewhat enjoyable. Uh, it was not the cringe-inducing movie that I had recalled. Uh, on the other hand, I don't see myself ever pulling out the the Blu-ray or the DVD and popping it into my uh, play or anytime soon either, which I could La say for every other Planet of the Apes movie that I could do that. La last year, um, or maybe it was the year before, I, uh, I sat down with my teenage son and we watched all of Planet of the Apes, uh, the, the classic movies, the Burton films, and, and what was then the first two new movies and both TV shows. And... Uh, he loved all of it, but there were only two things that he really just didn't enjoy. And I think anybody could probably predict what they were. It was the Burton film and the cartoon series. He just couldn't connect with either one of them. Mm. And, uh, which is, you know, it's, a, it's pretty much what you would expect. Uh, the, the animation uh, was redundant on the, on the cartoon was redundant. It was the same shot over and over again of, of a Jeep with, with two apes in it or... Um, you know the, the the humanoids running in one direction. You know, oh, three of them go that way, two of them go that way, and then there's the same three, and then there's the same two, and then there's the same three. You know, so that 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 annoyed the hell out of him. Uh, and, I call uh, that Hanna Barbarism. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It, it, it's a per perfect example. Is you know Fred Flintstone's house having one window on the outside and eighty-seven rooms that are all identical on the inside. <laughs> Fred Flintstone lived in a TARDIS, basically. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> so 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 you know that that ele- that element of the show annoyed the heck out of him. Um, but the Burton film he couldn't connect with at all. And uh, when we eventually rewatch the movies, I, I imagine he'll probably want to skip that one. Yeah, I, I, I can't argue with that thought process. <laughs> All right, then that brings us to the current series, which uh, which I'm looking forward to, to going through. And yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna cut us at this point because what I want to do is I want to wait till Zachy gets on with us, and then we're gonna jump into War for the Planet of the Apes. And and the reason I'm gonna cut it here is because I want to start off with what your anticipation was in between. Dawn and War, so I don't want to start getting into the the recent ones with you know before we get to that. So I think it's a good point. We'll we'll end here, and we'll pick up in when De- when Zachy can come on. Sure. Tell them I fought to protect this world. We created this. But now, we will bring an end to their kind. than we are but you're taking this all much too personally so emotional i did not start this war everybody we're back i am still here with rich handley and we are now joined by zaki hassan my one of, one of my many planet of the apes friends and uh welcome aboard zaki how's it going it's going fairly well thank you how you doing i'm doing great it's, are you it's uh, uh, we've been we've been uh, uh trying to find the time to to make this happen so i'm glad that uh, we we're the the stars aligned yeah for for uh for anybody listening, we started talking about doing this right around the time when – in fact, we started talking about the, doing this before the movie opened. Zachy had That's seen right. it in an advance preview, and we were talking about doing it then as soon as <laughs> I had a chance to see it. 
And then as time went on, uh, we weren't able to find the time. And then uh, I managed to meet up with Rich and I decided it would be best for all three of us to talk. And that just complicated things even more. So this, this is a long time coming and I've been looking forward to it. So if, if, if we suck at it, we're really letting you down. Uh, I don't think that's possible. Honestly, I've, uh, you know, you and I have had a very enjoyable conversation up to this point, and yes. Zachy and I have spoken a few times, so I really can't imagine that you're going to let me down. Anybody listening, that's up to them to, to render their own opinions, but I'm, I'm going to be cool with this no matter what. So what I'd like to do is to kind of get each of you to kind of gauge your feelings before you got to see War for the Planet of the Apes, what you were expecting, where you thought it might go, uh, you know, and, and just kind of, you know, what what you were hoping for from it. So uh, since since Rich and I have been going on at length, I'm going to start off with you, Zachy. What do you, what do you say about that? Well, I mean, my expectations going in were fairly high only because they, they'd primed to be high. Uh, they'd been primed to be high after... Uh, rise, but especially Dawn, where you had, you know, Matt Reeves really came in with a, a very specific view of this franchise uh, from his longtime fandom, and and you know, Dawn illustrated his approach to it. So there's no reason to think that uh, the follow through wouldn't be equally strong. Uh, I've learned to always temper my expectations because I mean, franchise closers, trilogy closers, can be tricky. And, and I was disappointed, for example, with The Dark Knight Rises, so I wouldn't say my expectations were astronomical, but, you know, uh, I had no reason to think it wouldn't be a solid movie. Right. How about you, Rich? Uh, I'm someone who, in the past, has felt let down by Godfather 3, Star Trek 3, uh, other, you know, other Return of the Jedi, where I've gone in going... Wow, the second one was actually better than the first one. Can they do it a third time? Eh, no. <laughs> and so I went into this worried that that was going to be the case because I loved Rise and I adored Dawn. And I just really didn't want Planet of the Apes to fall into that pattern that I've seen from other movies. I had high hopes for it, but I was worried going in that that was going to be the case. Yeah, I also had high hopes, and I usually try to keep my expectations as low as possible. Uh, you know, we've talked about this in the past, how uh, high expectations can actually ruin your opinion of a movie that's otherwise solid. Uh, you know, you, you, you just build it up too, too high in your mind, and if it isn't an all-time classic, somehow it's not good. Uh, and, and that's really unfair to the movie makers to do that. Uh, so I, I try to temper my expectations, but with this one, I couldn't help but have high expectations. Uh, my daughter, who is 17 years old now, uh, she's never really had any interest in Planet of the Apes, and I was desperately trying to get her to watch Rise and Dawn before this came out and then come with us to see this. Uh, and I think she would have appreciated it, but my efforts fell flat, and she was, she was not unwilling to give them a shot. Uh, my son has seen all of these with me, and he's on board. He's enjoyed the heck out of them. What I could say is I expected a different movie than what we got. I expected more of more in the way of epic battles, and I expected a larger scale movie. I think we got a much more personal movie than I anticipated. And I also didn't expect it to truly close out the trilogy, which I believe it did. And we could talk about that a little bit more as we go on. Uh, that said, I was not disappointed with the movie. I, uh, 
I, if you don't mind, I just want to throw one more thing in because sure. building what you just said. Well, basically, Rise was if you if you think of its position in the original series of films, <clears throat> it was Escape, and, and and that would make Dawn Conquest. So going into this. I, I really I, I figured uh, it was going to be Battle, which in essence it was, and Battle is a smaller movie than Escape or Conquest. So, going into it, I I I, uh, I was not disappointed that it was a smaller scale, um, but I get what you're saying. For me, it fit the pattern, um, although it was a lot better than Battle. It was uh, it, it it kind of fit the pattern in terms of uh, being a more personal movie and smaller in scale than the previous two. Well, right off the bat, see, see, oh, Rich, Rich, that's kind of that's kind of interesting because because I I I feel like uh, in in terms of thematic parallels, Rise is much more like Conquest, and we got very many similarities between Dawn and Battle, which really to me made War kind of un, uncharted territory in in terms of where this franchise has gone. I think that's also valid. I've I've always seen Rise as both Escape and Conquest. <laughs> And I yeah. see uh, Dawn as uh, Conquest and Battle. I think there's there you a go. But in terms of the idea that Conquest, um, I'm sorry, that Escape gives us the uh, the origin of, of Caesar. Ah, and, fair enough. Uh, and has a, uh, it, it's a, a fish out of water story. Sure, sure. Okay, that, no, that makes sense. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and, in, and in the case of, of um, in the case of Dawn, uh, the idea of, of a, of um, uh, I guess Dawn is is largely battle. You're right about that. But um, see, I, I think this is this is our geek nature needing to characterize these things, though, because <laughs> right, right. The, none of them is truly a remake of anything. No, no, no. There were parallels, know, but but, but the, there's thematic parallels. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, in the original series, you start in the future and then go back in time and start with with, with Caesar. But in this film series they've done the reverse they've started with caesar and so uh and 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 by putting the scene in rise with the with the with the uh, astronauts it seems like at some point they may do the opposite and go forward um so this series definitely has parallels to the beginning uh, to the original films in, in in terms of showing us an ape named caesar who becomes disenfranchised with the with the treatment of humanity and and, and creates a rebellion, and, and then uh, afterwards, there's a there's the beginning of an ape city, but mankind and apes can't get along, and so there's definitely a parallel between. A <laughs> yeah. Children at home. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> don't be sorry, and mine aren't young enough to oh, no. do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm here in in Paul knows this. I'm I'm in my closet uh, with like a blanket over my head, trying to muffle the noise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, having kids that young, it's just uh, yeah. When I when I had kids that young, that happened to me all the time. So I, I, I say that not in any way looking down. I'm chuckling at the memory of having had to do exactly the same thing. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I remember when when my you know when I had very young kids, and one of my friends had older kids over, and we were talking about, it, and he was just loving like playing with the young kids, and I, and it was like you know, do you miss it? And his answer, I thought, you know, resonated with me, and it's still true to this day. So, yeah, I miss it, but I don't want to relive it. I just, hmm. I just want to have memories of it. <laughs> wow, you know, it, it's, it's a great time of your life, but you just can't live it for your whole life. You know, you, your, your energy I, level's never going to stay that high that long. The best thing about um, seeing other people's kids is that they're other people's kids. So, yeah, I know. What you're <laughs> 
Yeah, but but that's you know just all I can say is enjoy it while you can because they 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 will be going to college before you know it. Yeah, I'm feeling it. Weird. But back back to these movies. I, I do think, you know, like you said, thematically, I think there are some similarities. And I do think we feel this need to kind of place them in a timeline with what's going on. And obviously, Planet of the Apes and Beneath the Planet of the Apes are in the far-flung future. And we can kind of allow them to exist in this state, in this same uh, timeline that we're getting with these movies. But then trying to acclimate them with Escape from the Planet of the Apes, Conquest from the Planet of the Apes, and Battle for the Planet of the Apes... It's not as easy as we want it to be. I've never seen them as the same timeline. Interesting that it's interesting that you say that. I, I think these films are absolutely a reboot. I mean, I, yeah. I, I know that people want there. I've, I've heard, I've heard other fans say the same thing that they see it as being the same timeline. But, I mean, the fact is, the ape revolution didn't happen in 1991, for example. Well, that's I, you can always go with the sliding time scale. That I don't have a problem with. But in my mind, I desperately want to consider it all one universe, and this is just a new point of view showing it. And and it's really impossible to do that, despite the fact that I want to. Right. <laughs> well, the fact that Caesar is not the son of Apenauts is a big one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so one, one, that, one, uh, one thing I've always said is is I don't see it as as you know fitting into the same timeline necessarily but i like the idea of we'll we'll end up 2000 years down the line at something similar to what we got in 1968 and yeah. there's no need to you know I, when i talked to to rick joff and amanda silver like 5 years ago 6 years ago that's one thing i told them i was like i'd i'd rather we never see a remake of apes 68 cuz we just don't need it but we know because the, the the you know the franchise is so much in sort of the ethos, like well that's what it'll look like. So we know after a war ends, two thousand years down the line, we'll end up with something similar to that without ever needing to see it. Yeah, which is which is what I do as well. Yeah, I have a feeling we will see that, but I'm totally with you that we don't. It's yeah. it's going to be interesting. It's one of the things when we when, after we kind of get through the you know talking about the movie a little bit, I want to ask you both where you see them going from here. Uh, and, you know, spoilers for anybody who's listening to this and hasn't watched it yet. But, uh, you know, one of the things that I said, you know, they did that I didn't expect was killing off Caesar at the end. I did not expect that at all. Mm. And that really gives me some question marks as to where they're going with the next movies, next movies, because uh, I'm sure they are going somewhere with them. And like I said, at the end, I'd like to kind of get your opinions as to where you think that's going to go. Uh, I thought the movie started off fairly bold and raising the stakes by killing off Bright Eyes and Cornelia. That did surprise me. You know, a, a lot of these movies, uh, you watch them and, you know, you feel like at the end of the movie, there's not going to be much different from at the beginning of the movie. You and, know, Cornelia uh, has been kind of sidelined anyway, though. I mean, she was supposed to be in Rise, for example, and wasn't, so... They seem to have, have downplayed her importance to the film series, other than a couple of scenes in Dawn. Yeah, I, but, I, but I do think those few scenes resonated enough where she's not so important to the film series, but you understand how important she is to Caesar. Mm-hmm. Which, which certainly makes it, it, it draws into relief why they uh, killed her off as well as Bright Eyes. I mean, uh, the, the purpose of the film, this film particularly, is to push Caesar up against to, to the point where you take away those things that are most valuable to him. I mean, I, th- I think um, 
had they killed off Cornelius, that would have been maybe a bridge too far. But uh, in terms of his arc in the film, I think it, it's necessary to to make uh, where we end up, you know, feel fulfilling. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, but, uh, you know, like I said, I think they raised the stakes. So, so as you're watching the movie, anybody could go at any time. You know, it's, it's almost saying to you, don't necessarily get too attached to any character because we could take them out. And then, yeah. and they live up to that, like I said, at the end of it when we lose Caesar. Uh, it was so beautifully done that I was mm-hmm. okay with them doing it. Although I would have liked to see him be in a few more films. I, I really appreciated the um, the approach they took to his death. So uh, I, I had an emotional reaction to it, and you know that's really that's that's really what the most you can hope from a film. So you know, you know what what I think is really important is is that. Like I like I said earlier, like we have a we know where the planet of the apes has to go, and it goes to a place where apes are not necessarily benign and benevolent. So I think it was really important for us to have Caesar leave the stage, yes. while he while he is benign and benevolent. Yeah, I think that's um, that's a fair thing, and and maybe. Then from here, and again, I'm trying to get ahead of myself a little bit, but from here, maybe we're going to learn why they're not so benign and benevolent. Maybe maybe we're going to see them fall under the uh, rule of somebody who's not quite as, you know, as as, uh, Christ-like. Yeah, right. Well, you know, in any any situation, in any uh, society, the biggest biggest problem that individuals face is that there's got to be somebody in charge. And uh, it's a top-down scenario, so all it really takes is for one or two bad apes to use the, <laughs> the phrase from, uh, from from war, to come <laughs> and you end up with a, a very big change in society. I mean, heck, we've seen that recently in the United States. Not not to get too political, but I mean, it doesn't take long for society to change. And uh, so yeah, I, I I agree very much with Zaki that it uh, it was a, an important transition for Caesar to leave the stage, especially if what comes next is something that would have upset Caesar to see. Yeah. Now one of the, one of the things that I, I felt it was Matt Reeves kind of acknowledging that our expectations is or expectations are that we're going to get to the 1968 Planet of the Apes universe, uh, and that he addressed the fact that humans cannot speak. In that uh, yeah. in that particular existence, and I thought he did so very well. I thought that was a very real good explanation for it. That the the virus has now mutated to the point where if you're immune from death, you know, from being killed by it, you're not immune to becoming mute and losing your higher brain power. Although they didn't show much in the way of losing the higher brain power, they've said that, but Nova, as portrayed in the movie, did not seem to be. Uh, to, for lack of a better word, dim-witted. Uh, you know, she she didn't seem animalistic in the way she acted. She just seemed mute. She hmm. had an atrophied intelligence, and I think that that's. Uh, I I think that at the end, of, you you could see the end of war as being that not every human is going to end up like the colonel. You no, know? I mean if what I mean is that if 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 in your if in your head canon, you need to to ram these films and the old films into a single continuity, you can say. That not every human ends up like the colonel. Some are just going to end up mute. Maybe that, that the intelligence becomes atrophied, and that you know, with the right, with the right uh, impetus, the right um, ah, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, 
catalyst that maybe uh, you know someone like Nova could could regain it. Well, and and bear in mind that Nova is a child who is acting childlike, and one presumes yes. that other humans will it'll be more pronounced if they are adults acting like children. That's that's fair too. Uh, you know, let's let's get let's talk a little bit about the the, the newer characters in this. We'll start off with them. So let's let's talk about Nova a little bit. Uh, what did you think of not only uh, her inclusion in the movie, but the portrayal and the way she was written? Uh, go for it, Zeki. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I thought it was clever. It's it's a nice little callback. I mean, the the whole series up to this point has done these little nods. Uh, toward the the extant films, I you know I think I said in our in our rise talk that uh, some of the some of the the callbacks in that film felt a little ham handed to me. Um, I like that with with movies two and three, it's a little more subtle. This is one of those things where if you know the films, you're like, oh, that's cool. Um, but if you don't, it you know the 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 way she's given that name is perfectly seamless and it just flows and and uh, it's it's the way an Easter egg should be. And and more than that, I mean, I think she has agency in the story in that she uh, really kind of represents Caesar's emotional reclamation in that he he takes on a fatherly protective uh, spirit towards her uh, that allows him to look past the hatred he's feeling towards, you know, uh, all humans, uh, in, in essence, after what the colonel does. Yeah. I, I, I thought, actually, I thought the naming of her as Nova was, and, and I talked about how Matt Reeves kind of acknowledged the future ones, but I thought that was him a little bit, you know, giving a nod to it, but distancing himself, because the coincidence yeah. of uh, this character being named Nova, and then Charlton Heston naming a character Nova, you know, 2,000 years from now, just is, you know, something that doesn't really kind of resonate with me on the other yeah. hand uh you know if if he wants to say it's a new timeline then somehow i have to fight that urge to create you know the connection <laughs> that i do i uh, i think about what, what zachy was just saying and and uh, i i agree with him i mean one of the things that i i, I like rise a lot but having a character named dodge landon for example uh, right it I, I felt like someone had kicked the jukebox when i heard the name and uh <laughs> Yeah, and I was like, what did he just say? Dodge Landon? What? You know, and and I and I didn't have that reaction to her being named Nova, largely because I accept this as a different timeline, as you just said. But also, um, to me, it was a nice little nod. I mean, the funny thing is there's a Nova in the Burton film, too. I mean, that that name seems to and there's a Nova in the in the cartoon series. Nova just seems to keep popping up everywhere. Um uh, I, I think at this point it's it's probably going to be inevitable as we continue to have films, even if we have uh, films set in the future. There's going to be a Taylor and there's going to be a Nova. Maybe there'll be a Brent and maybe there'll be a Persis. I mean, I think we, we're, we, we've we gotten to a point with this universe where those names are going to keep being used and we kind of have to accept it. There's a Brent in the cartoon as well, for example. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so I, I it didn't bother me so much that her name was Nova. I thought that she served the story well. Uh, her putting aside her name, I thought the character was wonderfully written, wonderfully acted, and um, you know, you, when you, when anytime you inject a child actor into any story, there's always the fear that kid's going to be precocious and 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 distract. And I didn't feel that way at all in this case. I thought she, I thought her inclusion was organic, and I thought that that. Um, I thought there was a there was there was a genuine emotional need for her character in terms of Caesar's evolution. I, I would agree, and I thought her her acting in it was surprisingly mature. 
Yeah. I think she was 11 years old when they filmed it. Uh, now, I don't know, you know, as an actress, if she could handle line delivery, but she didn't have to. She just had to be able to show emotion right. and to, you know, hit her marks and, and with the with the right look on her face, which, uh, uh, frankly, you know, I mean, they picked an actress, uh, a young actress that, that fitted perfectly, in, in my opinion. So I, 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 I agree that she... she added to the emotional resonance of the movie and also created that conflict between good humans and I don't even want to say bad humans. I want to say aggressive humans. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You know, that's a good way of looking at it. It's <clears throat> one could make the argument that there are no good or bad humans in these films, in these films, even characters like the Colonel, they're reacting to this crazy world that they're living in. And, um, it's easy to label one of them as uh, any of them as evil, but the truth is, if you're living in a world in which a plague has wiped out the majority of humanity, and there are apes on horseback that talk, um, you're going to get paranoid. You're going to get overreactive, and you're going to be desperate. And um, it's one of the it's one of the things I like about both the old films and the new films is there's a lot of gray to these movies. Um, Sure, you have characters that are one-dimensional, like like Governor Culp, but I've always been of the imp of the impression that Governor Breck was a little grayer than that, you know. And uh, sure. and I think the same is true of the Colonel. I think that I think that one of the things that makes Planet of the Apes so fascinating is you get characters like Zaius and 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 Doctor Hasline and Breck and the Colonel, and you say I, I they're not Darth Vader, you know, they're not the Emperor, they're characters that are doing what they feel is right at a time of, of, of desperation and paranoia when the world has been turned upside down and they simply want to save their people. And uh, to me, that's a lot more interesting than a one-dimensional flat character. Yeah, what, what I The way I describe that is I say uh, characters, basically all the ones you just said, I would call them antagonists, but mm -hmm. not villains. I agreed, yeah. Zachy, you were going to say something. I'm sorry, I cut you off. Yeah, no, yeah, no. I, I apologize for cutting you off. Uh, I, I just wanted to pick up on what Rich was saying. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that certainly in the original five, uh, you know, I look at the character of Hasline as he, he's fascinating. Like he's clearly, you, you hate him by the end of the movie because he is responsible for killing Cornelius and Zier, and we love Cornelius and Zier. But his arc through the film is fascinating because certainly when we first see him, we have no indication that he's going to be the black hat and the, the you know the stuff that he says throughout the film right how much time is the world we think uh, you know it, uh, we think we've got all the time in the world and then uh, he says uh am i god's enemy or his instrument yeah i love you that know speech. yeah absolutely isn't that great paul, paul dane was i mean he was uh, it, it was a master class the script for for escape but but in in many ways i i think uh, the colonel is like a, a merger of hasline and and Breck, here we are yes. doing you know the parallelism, but I think part of that also is because we know Woody Harrelson, we like Woody Harrelson. And uh, I think he was phenomenal in this movie. Casting helps you uh, shape yeah. the character. I, I think yeah. he did a phenomenal job in this movie. He was chilling. Yeah. But and and he, you know, what we we've I've talked in the past about you know a lot of times the the question that comes to you uh, when they make you think in these movies is does the ends justify the means. And I think ultimately you you can't answer that question in this movie. Yeah. I think you you know you're presented with it, you know, and and like you said, Rich, if you're put in the position of being the colonel, you know, 
can you say what he did was wrong? And I don't think I can. I, I don't agree with the way he treated the characters. Uh, you know, you like to think he'd, you find a more humane way of preserving your species. And probably the end doesn't justify the means in that situation. But you know what? We're not in that situation. Right. <laughs> and, and things are happening really fast. Things are coming down on them. You know, this is only 15 years uh, from Rise. Right. It's, it's not like, okay, you know, we've lived in this existence for a whole life. He's seen, you know, Woody Harrelson, I, I assume, is in his mid-40s or so. Uh, so from when he was 30 years old to when he was, say, 45, he's seen his entire world crumble around him to the yeah. point where all they have is this little base. And, and he's, he's got in a, a unique position of trying to salvage what's left. Woody Harrelson, he's got people on both sides coming at 56, him. 56, Woody yeah. Harrelson. Is he? Okay, so he's 40 when this starts. Wow, he's a lot older than I thought. Um, he looks good he, for his age. Yes, he does. He, uh, <laughs> but he, he's got both sides because he's got the apes trying to preserve their species, and then he's got the other humans saying he's going too far and trying to stop him. Yeah. Well, you know, there's also the fact that he uh, he is, um, you know, he's, he's Apocalypse Now. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. He's Colonel yeah. Kurtz. Yeah, and... Uh, you know, I, I think the thing that, that, that the best thing I can say about about his portrayal of the character is that had Woody Harrelson portrayed him as villainous, or conversely, had someone other than Woody Harrelson been in the role that was not as likable as an actor, um, we might have seen it as karma, bitch, when the colonel gets it at the end. <laughs> Whereas I got to the end of the film and felt bad for the guy. Yeah. And oh, yeah, I, I think, think you're supposed that to. That says so much for the nuances of his portrayal. The fact that despite everything we just watched, my heart went out to him when he's not, when, when he's reaching out, unable to speak and think. And I was like, ah, oh, the poor thing. And like, whoa, 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 what am I saying, the poor thing? This is like, you know, this guy's, a, this guy's horrible. But no, no, he's not. He's a, he's a Planet of the Apes antagonist, well, as you put it. And so the fact that Woody Harrelson was actually able to make me feel bad for this guy in the end, I think says a lot for the writing of the character and for his portrayal. So now, now a question came up, as we were watching it, we, we were discussing it a little bit, you know, as I did my rewatch last week for this. Uh, when that happens to him, when he loses his ability to speak and, and Caesar confronts him and he takes the gun and he puts it down, is Caesar being benevolent, saying, I feel sorry for this guy, I'm going to walk away? Or is he saying he got what he deserves and this is more torturous to him than, than a merciful death. I think there's oh, ambiguity that. there. I think, uh, you know, no matter how good, you know, how benevolent Caesar is, just like the rest of us, he's prone to, to negative, to have negative traits and to, and to be angry and to be vengeful. And so, yeah, a good argument could be made that he's letting the Colonel get his, I, I choose not to to view Caesar that way, though. I, I yeah, it's, yeah. I, I view him as, as having pity on the guy. I, I think that I think the reason Caesar is such a great leader is that he is compassionate and that he is he is able to empathize with everybody, not not just not just those under under his charge. Yeah, and 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 I think the, the whole purpose of the movie is that Caesar is racked with guilt over what happened with Coba. Uh, who he yes. did allow to die directly through his actions. So, so what happens with the colonel is remember when he's pulling the trigger, he's it's it's rage on his face. He's like I'm, you know, and then he stops himself. So it's it, it 
to kill the colonel would not have been an act of mercy. It would have been an act of vengeance. Right. I'm, I, um, I agree with you. I, I, I could see why people would go both ways with this, but I, I, I saw it as an act of, I saw his sparing him or not, not killing him as, I, I didn't see it as torturous. I, I just think, I, I agree with you. He was, at that moment for him, was resonating what happened to Cobra. Right. And I, I ultimately think the fact that he left the gun there and left the choice with the colonel right. is where he was being merciful. Because if he was saying, serves him right, you know, let him live this existence, he would have taken the gun with him. And yeah. he, wouldn't have given, he wouldn't have given the colonel the choice. But he, he, as I read it, or as I perceived it, he said, I'll be merciful and let him choose his own fate. He knew right. that the colonel was soon going to be losing his faculties, and he said, you know, as your last act, maintain some dignity. If you want to go out your way, you know, I, I, I'm going to allow that to happen. And which, which is, you know, it says a lot for him as a character because this man yep. killed his wife and son. Yep. And, and I, I can't imagine that situation where I wouldn't pull the trigger the second I had the opportunity. Right. And, and that is why, I, for me... I, War is one of the best Planet of the Planet Apes films of the whole franchise. I I empathized with the antagonist. I en empathized with the protagonist, and I I found that so many of the characters in this movie were well-rounded, three-dimensional characters. There there were a couple of more one-dimensional stereotypes in the previous two, as much as I love them. But this movie, to me, I just sat there in awe the whole time, and uh, I. Part of the reason why I was sad to see Caesar die is I wanted to see that magic continue in more movies uh, because it, this movie worked for me very well. Now, in, in my rewatch of the movie, uh, I was somewhat taken by how little they did in the way of comic relief in it. Uh, the tension would rise and they wouldn't allow you that comic moment very often. I mean, they did on occasion, but they wouldn't allow it frequently to let some of the tension dissipate. So this is one of these movies where it leaves you kind of emotionally drained at the end of it, in my opinion, and if you allow yourself to be design. taken into it. I'm sorry? I think that's by design. I think you're, that's. I think their, their intention was not to let you rest. I, I agree. But in, in an effort to give you some outlet, some little outlet, they added in uh, Steve Zahn as Bad Ape. Yeah. And I just wanted to talk about him and what you guys thought about him, because he did seem to be somewhat of a polarizing character, uh, not to the extent of, say, a Jar Jar Binks. Uh, but I did talk to some people who really didn't like his inclusion in the movie. I thought his inclusion was was actually kind of poignant. Uh, I saw him as, as a character, you know, who, who was desperate for companionship and, you know, really didn't know how to socialize quite right. And he added a little bit of comic relief without going over the top. And I do, like I said, I thought he was a little bit poignant. So I'm curious how, how you guys saw him and you know what you thought of his inclusion in the movie. I I, I love the character. I I um when the character was first introduced, I was almost immediately afraid we were going to have another Jar Jar on our hands. Um, but that only lasted about ten seconds. Uh, I just found him fun. I. I I, I found him fun in a way that Jar Jar never was, in that uh, here's this character saying some silly things with a silly voice in a, uh, you know, in a, in a, in a silly situation, but didn't come off as silly. And uh, 
that took some talent. I mean, that, that, that cannot have been an easy line to walk. But somehow Steve Zahn made this character uh, almost the human heart of the film, despite the fact that he could have come off as Jerry Lewis. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I mean, Steve Zahn is, is so fantastic. I mean, you forget that that's Steve Zahn, the way he uh, cr- creates the character, not just in the performance, but through through his, his voice uh, delivery. Um, but I think in, in narrative terms, Bad Ape's presence is also really important because he's showing us how there are now apes all over the planet who are are mutating in a way that that um, says that this is not just confined to to Caesar's community, and I think that's important as as sort of little pieces of thread that can be picked up down the line. Yeah. Um, I also love the 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 visual uh, you know cue of having him wearing that ribbed blue vest. Oh my god, that was hilarious. As perfect, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and I I love the idea that. You know, thousands of years down the line, apes wearing those ribbed vests will evoke a very different feeling, um, mm. which is terror. But here, it's like, oh, that's cute. You know, <laughs> I think what you just said is, is is key to part of why I, I almost within seconds changed my opinion on him. Not only because of the portrayal, but I picked up on what you're talking about with the ribbed jacket. I thought, wow, there's a, a real irony to this guy's look that yeah. he's um. He's this pitiable, weak-looking thing wearing a, you know, just wearing the silliest little, you know, winter outfit. But that is going to inform the look of the guerrilla soldiers two thousand years from now, right? Uh, or or a thousand years if you take the TV series into it. Right. And, and I fully believe that Matt Reeves was conscious of these things. I don't think well, I, think, I don't no think doubt. any of these no things doubt. are happy coincidences. No doubt. Absolutely. I, I think in the case of Bad Apes outfit that, that 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 was not just a happy coincidence. I think I think that that was by design and it and it made me like it because unlike say the name of, you know, Dodge Landon, I thought this was organic. Right. Yeah, I, because I totally Bad agree. Ape is going to end up being a hero to these people. Now, one one new character in the movie that I thought was a little underdeveloped and it's hard to figure out how to make it better uh, when you have a two-hour and 20-minute movie already. Uh, but I thought I would have liked to have seen just a little bit more development of Lake because she was left to be a little bit of a torchbearer along with Maurice at the end of the movie, uh, effectively that she's going to raise Cornelius now. And I would have liked to have seen just a little bit more of her and her relationship with Blue Eyes before we had Blue Eyes eliminated I don't know, uh, you know, what you guys think about her and and that. Yeah, you're not wrong. You know, I I, I kind of you see her 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 function in the plot. I just I mean, I I I go to what you just said earlier. It's like, well, we've got this much story we need to cover, and I mean, really, it's Caesar's story, so it stands to reason that once Caesar uh, separates from from uh, the you know the tribe. Uh, we're following him, and I would imagine any any cross cutting or cutting back and forth would be like, well, this is fine, but I want to see what's going on over there. You know, if if there's any flaw that I could point out that stems most of the the new movies, it's that the female characters have have kind of been sidelined, hmm. uh, going all the way back to Rise. Uh, well, with the exception of Carrie Russell, I thought she was a good character. Yeah, I, I wish she'd had a little more screen time, but yeah, she's the standout, uh, absolutely. Um, and uh, so it, it doesn't really surprise me that that Lake was underdeveloped because 
uh, as you point out, other than Carrie Russell, really all of the female characters in, in the entire trilogy take a back seat. Well, actually, I mean, then there's Nova, but Nova has no lines. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, that's true. Uh, you know, I don't think of her as a female character so much as I, a child character. A child character, yeah. So you know, so basically, it, it's a it's an unfortunate thing. But I, it, part of that may also be that um, I mean, really, when you look at the entire five original movies, other than Zira, and, and uh, there are no truly strong female characters. Uh, well, I, I would argue Stephanie Branton. Yeah, although keep in mind that Stephanie Branton takes a backseat to Lewis Dixon. <laughs> This is true. Yeah, so, yeah, so, um, but yes, I agree with you that on some level she is as well. Uh, but I also think the average film goer wouldn't be able to name Stephanie Cranton, right? So because she, she doesn't stand out as much as... Super uh, geek, yay! <laughs> <laughs> but what, 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 I, what I think, though, is that, uh, and again, I'm, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I think that uh, going forward... The next step of this is we're going to see Cornelius's story and where he goes and possibly him battling, uh, you know, a bad influence on the ape society. Uh, and if Lake is going to be his surrogate mother, she should have a significant role in the movie, even if it's not her, her vehicle. Uh, and I would think it would benefit them to have her be a little bit fleshed out because now going into the new movie, if she's going to have a significant part, and I don't know that she's going to, this is all speculation, obviously, uh, but if she's going to have a significant part, it makes you a little bit more vested in or invested in the new movie before it comes out. And that's the way I'm thinking. I'm kind of thinking, in the you know, going forward as well as what we already have. Hmm. I think that uh, if you go back to Rise, you know, and you see that certain characters get introduced and get more screen time later, Koba comes to mind. I'm I'm hoping that um, I'm, I'm hoping that that, that that that's the case with Lake and with Cornelius. I'm hoping that they uh, that they take center stage, but it's also possible that the next film could jump ahead hundreds of years. You know, like we may have seen the end of that era. It's it's hard to say. That, that's that's my suspicion. I mean, I, I I think you know. I mean, I think what happens right now with this franchise is that they hit the pause button because I mean, unfortunately, War didn't perform uh, the way they would have liked. And so, if I were to guess, I don't. I don't think it's over. I think uh, what is going to happen is that they'll they'll let it lie fallow for a few years, um, and then come back with a new endpoint that lets them sort of say that it's a reinvention of sorts without having hit you know without doing the Tim Burton reboot button. Um, so, so my sense would be that we move ahead a little further, maybe not all the way to to Taylor's era, but certainly further along where the status quo resembles more closely, you know, the, the iconic planet of the apes, which is apes, intelligent apes in clothes, uh, in, in some kind of conflict with humans is, is what I would guess. I want to see the mutants again. I I do too. Absolutely. And I would love to see the development of the mutants. Yeah. I want to see the, the current version of what the mutants would be like. First of all, I think we've probably already seen that it's called the walking dead. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but uh, you know, I, I just I, I would hope that they would resist the urge to go that gruesome. But I would love to see I would love to see somebody reinvent the mutants. And uh, I, for me, Beneath is is probably my favorite of the sequels. I you know, look, my favorite sequel is whatever one I'm watching at any moment. But usually, I, <laughs> but usually I cite Beneath, and uh, I would love to see somebody revisit that. Well, one of the things I see I, I see it as ripe for we could pick up not quite where we left off. 
maybe go say 10 years into the future and have Cornelius be you know old enough to try to assert his his uh, family line a little bit but not necessarily and and I don't want to see him as the villainous character but maybe have somebody else who's preventing him from doing so and I think I think there's some ripe you know storytelling material there uh, and one question that jumps to mind and it did the second the movie was coming to a close and I'm just curious as to your opinions is Maurice is he the, the lawgiver oh, I was I was literally just about to be like hey guys so Maurice is for sure the lawgiver right that's the way I see it I can't <laughs> no, imagine totally. but, and that's something you could play with you could have a new movie now and I'm already I keep jumping to what we're gonna go to and, and uh, I didn't I don't mean to but I could think we could have a new movie now where we could have the development of Maurice as the lawgiver Cornelius fighting off whatever bad things are going on, and we could have the development of the mutants. And the mutants, I don't think we're, we're going with mindless walking dead mutants. I think we're, you know, we, I'd like to see the mutants be some sort of a sect of humans that have somehow retained the power of speech at the cost of something else, you know, the, the mutation or whatever that they go through. Uh, you know, earlier, Rich, you and I were talking about the different comic book series, and in the Boom comic series, they really played with the mutants a lot. Brother Cal, yeah, and and I I think I enjoyed that aspect of those. Uh, Brother of, of Cal those is one of my favorite characters to come out of the comics. Uh, I just uh, really enjoyed that character. Um, Malibu did as well. Malibu had Mendez the Tenth, and that was a fun character as well. There's a lot that you can do with it. I mean, not 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 to get pluggy, but in in uh, the the book you and I had discussed earlier, Tales from the Forbidden Zone. Uh, we had two stories, one written by me and, and uh, one written by Dan Abnett that fleshed out the, the – um, at least I hope they fleshed out because I'm self-serving in saying that. But that uh, that fleshed out <laughs> the mutants a bit. Um, for me, that's always been a fascinating aspect of, of, of the universe and for the reason that you just said. The idea that, yeah, they retain speech and, and their faculties at a time when humanity is not. But, it, but whatever prevents them from, from becoming uh, – Mute savages changes them fundamentally, and uh, to me that's fascinating. I think a lot of people saw it as a jump the shark moment. But I, I I never did. I saw that as if you're going to accept, if you're going into a universe accepting that somehow apes evolve the capacity for speech and single-handedly topple humans from the evolutionary ladder, then to me the idea of of telepathic humans bred from radioactivity is really not that hard to swallow. <laughs> yeah, it's, it does start to come to you know, the question of what's a bridge too far, and I don't think that is a bridge too far. But right. you know, you know what's you know what's interesting though, guys is is I do I wonder how the because this you know I've like I, I alluded to the Dark Knight trilogy earlier. I sort of liken these films to the, they're like the Christopher Nolan Planet of the Apes movie, and what I mean by that is he t- you know. Uh, both Matt Reeves and the latter ones, but even earlier with with the, the way Rick and Amanda approached it, it's this very sort of grounded, ground level, uh, quote unquote, believable way we would end up at the Planet of the Apes, right? And so that's my question, right? Because because like the Dark Knight films, they were so grounded that there was no room for like the really out there villains that Batman fought. There just wasn't room in that construction of the universe. And I and I wonder with these films. How do you introduce the mutants in a way where your average audience isn't like, come on, you know, like that's, I, and I'm not saying it can't be done, but I'm curious how, what they're in is that's just as grounded and believable as everything up to this point. 
I, I have a theory on that one because I've actually given some thought to that. One of the things that this new series of films has changed, I mean, it hasn't prevented it, but it has changed, is that there has not been a focus on nuclear war. It's all been the result of a virus. Right. So the changes that we see happening are due to a, a virus changing us on, on, on the fundamental level. So the apes acquire speech, humans become mute, and so forth. I think that any change that comes about would probably be, in the context of these new movies, tied to that somehow. Hmm. Uh, that, that, that telepathy becomes a genetic alteration of some sort, maybe as a result of the virus. Uh, <laughs> I'm no geneticist, so if I'm saying the terminology badly, uh, you know, sorry. But um, so I think that the way to do this would be to tie it in somehow as a result of the virus. That, uh, yeah, I would think I think it would be it would be a mistake not to bring radioactivity into it, and and so that's where that's where the the concern you voiced comes in. If you know it, it back 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 in, in in previous decades, we were all less sophisticated, so we bought the idea that gamma radiation will turn you into a giant green angry man instead of killing you. And we bought the idea that a radioactive spider, you know, would, would make you able to walk walls instead of just making you vomit. So, <laughs> I, you know, I, I realize that we would there's a there's a certain disadvantage now to the idea that, oh, look at that. We live in a radioactive wasteland. So we're telepaths. I, there, there's a there's a certain uh, suspension of disbelief that might not be there that was back then. But right, I right. think it could be done. I, and I think the key would be to tie it into the virus. If the virus is 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 removing some people's faculties maybe it's boosting it in others and maybe mm -hmm. that is in some way triggering uh, a latent ability we all have that are not using and also if you, if you factor in you know that just the theories of evolution that that humans developed from apes there might be people who are somewhere in the middle as far as just their genetics go yes that somehow they'd be affected differently than the average human I don't know if that makes any sense or not, but in my mind, I'm willing to ride with it. You know, look, think of it in terms of our current current world. Why are some people uh, a lot, lot more likely to get the cold or the flu than someone else? We're not all fundamentally the same. And, uh, and so there may be some branch of humanity that is going to react differently to the virus than the people uh, who are losing their faculties. So, you know, now as, as I sit here and I'm, you know, talking to two people who've also spent most of their lives <laughs> loving this series as I have, and it's real easy, I think, for us to sit here and say, if they would do this, this could be an entertaining story. And I think, Zachy, you've kind of hit on a little bit of, yeah, that's fine, but what would the average person do? <laughs> you know, people who haven't spent <laughs> their entire lives watching these movies and loving them and, you know, being totally invested in this, in, in this life. Uh, and I'm not sure, you know, you know, you, you pointed out that this movie did not perform as well in the box office as we would hope. And I'm but sure it wasn't a bomb, was it? it? It wasn't a bomb, but it was a, you know, it was definitely a disappointment, uh, given how really Dawn broke out in, in a big way. And this one made substantially less than that. So, I mean, you know, just, just being, you know, clear eyed about it. I mean, it's, it, it's a disappointment and that's something that Fox will definitely take into account. Uh, like and I said, I don't think them, so. does that affect it? I don't think it would in the immediate term. I mean, it, it's it's a valuable IP. It's not going anywhere, but I definitely think that it. You know, I think I think the nice thing about these movies, and maybe I said this earlier, is that they they perform at at a level that allows that has allowed them to keep making them at and have them be true to themselves. 
but they're not such massive hits that you have a whole bunch of fingers in the pie. So I think that helps. I mean, uh, War for the Planet of the Apes didn't didn't play the way Dawn did, but it also cost less to make. Yeah. Which is rare, you know. So, so I think you know you you spend a hundred fifty million, I think it was, and the movie made something like five hundred uh, globally, if I'm not mistaken, or a little less than that. So, I mean, nobody's losing their shirt on it, right? And it's one of those things where where you walk away and you say, well, we got this artistic triumph that was adored by critics, and you know, uh, the San Francisco Film Critics Circle and myself included, just a few weeks ago, we gave Andy Serkis the Best Actor Award for this movie. Hmm. Um, so, so I think I think that's the nice thing about a movie like this is it will continue to play because it is part of this trilogy, and I think people will watch it and and Toto. So it'll it'll be an annuity for Fox. But going forward, you start saying, okay, what are they going to do next? D- does does the performance of this movie make a next one uh, immediately inevitable? No, uh, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I th- I think it's a good idea to let the franchise sit for a little while come back in, in five, maybe ten years and, and do something different with it. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Well, my biggest problem with that is I'm not getting any younger. Well, that's the true. There's that, too. <laughs> I, but, uh, I think, I think uh, Zach, you touched on an interesting point. I mean, there, there's a certain advantage and a certain disadvantage to being a niche franchise as opposed to a huge blockbuster. The The disadvantage is that you, you fill fewer theater seats, but the, but the advantage is that you also have... Um, you, you, you're you're less likely to be called a failure for having a moderate success. It, right. So, like Star Trek Beyond, or say a Marvel Cinematic Universe film that performed those same numbers would be considered a disaster. Right. With Planet of the Apes, people instead might say, "Oh, look, this okay, it was disappointing, but look, Planet of the Apes is still bringing people into theaters." It. Who knew? I, maybe we didn't think these films would do as well as they could. I, I think that I think that in the end that. Uh, I think it's. I think people are, at least I hope, are going to be more forgiving these movies than others. Like Star Trek and Star Wars, the the the, uh, the, mov- the movies that are constantly in our faces, um, are expected to to pull in seven gazillion dollars, or else they're seen as failures. Uh, I don't think. I don't, I think that one aspect of Planet of the Apes is that it doesn't have that working against it. I mean, you know, Zachy, I think you know a lot more about this than I do. So so please, by all means, correct me if I'm wrong. But I. I um, I, I'm more I'm more in, inclined to think that uh, that this movie will not be viewed as uh, as poison, whereas well, if those same numbers in another film might have been. I'm looking no, I, quickly. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm looking quickly at Box Office Mojo while we're talking about this, and maybe this might influence your your response to that. Uh, I don't know, but uh, according to Box Office Mojo, uh, the production budget on this was 150 million. The domestic gross was 146. Eight hundred eighty thousand. The worldwide gross was four hundred ninety million, uh, and you so, might have so, a better feel for how that affects the. Uh, so I mean, four hundred ninety. Think about it. Four hundred ninety million. That puts it right around where uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes was. Right. Rise of the Planet of the Apes made I think like four hundred eighty. Dawn of the Planet of the Apes made seven hundred ten million worldwide. So this is a steep drop from that. That's three hundred million dollars almost. Right, so or two hundred million dollars, a little over. So, so that's a substantial enough drop. Where if you're the studio, you're saying, well, it, is there is there an audience 
moving forward that's worthy that's worthwhile enough to, to keep making these movies in the same way and I don't know the answer to that I will say because I have a friend who works at Fox and I asked him about this I said I mean what's the feeling about about uh, uh, how war played and he said they're 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 really disappointed because they knew they had a great movie um, but I asked him I was like does this mean the franchise is dead he's like it's not dead it's it's a really valuable IP and they know that um, you know but but it doesn't. It doesn't mean another sequel picking up right where this one left off is a foregone conclusion. And like I said, I I truly don't see that as a bad thing. It's funny because because um, you were talking earlier about about Caesar dying and sort of the sadness that comes with that. I was definitely sad with that, uh, but I wasn't. But but I felt I felt satisfied. I was sad, but I was satisfied because I felt like what we got here is this perfect little trilogy within the broader story that is planet of the apes yeah. and i think that's really special i agree i, I agree I, and, and i think you know you talked i, I remember hearing you talk on your show uh, movie film uh and just for anybody listening zachy's does there's two podcasts that i listen to regularly the movie film podcast and nostalgia theater and they're both excellent and i refer oh, thank you so I, much. I, I refer you over to them to listen to them uh but i remember you talking on movie film uh you and brian and you mentioned uh, I think it was in response to an email from Rob Kelly that uh, you didn't think the movie was so much of a failure as possibly the marketing of the movie might have been a little bit of a failure. And I don't know if that's an accurate yeah. uh, description of, of where you fell on it, but I think that may be a fair description of this. I think the the marketing probably fell a little bit shy of showing the audience what they were going to get. And maybe that's where they failed to pull in the audience that they needed. Yeah, I mean, I I think in 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 a couple ways. I think I think number one, uh, it it looked based on the commercials, it looked very similar to Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Um, I also think that, and this is not something that necessarily the marketing could have done anything about, but the the war of the time, the war for the Planet of the Apes, is being waged internally in Caesar. That is the war for the planet of the apes, and and how do you convey that? Right? You really can't. So I think there were about five different factors that played in. I also think something that's not necessarily being talked about as much, and and this is something I've thought about, is we're living in apocalyptic times, which sure feels like pre-apocalyptic times, and I'm not sure how comfortable people are, you know, escaping to a post-apocalyptic world when it feels like we're watching a documentary of what's going to happen 10 years from now, you know? Although, consider that when Beneath came out, I mean, th there was a genuine fear that we were going to end up a nucleated wasteland. This uh, is true. Well, that right. was, the, you know, the heart of the Cold War. Yeah. So, um... But, Rich, to be fair, I mean, sorry, Beneath, it played relative to its budget, but didn't it didn't play at the same numbers as Planet. No, that's actually a really good point, and I was just going to say that that maybe uh, you're actually you you were more dead on than I was realizing because <laughs> the numbers on that film bear you out. So yeah, there you go. Well, I think I think as far as the original five, every time they came out with a movie, they slashed the budget for the next one, and were shocked that they got the box office return that they got, and they were empowered in two ways in that they said, oh, we can make another sequel and make money. But also, see, cutting the budget doesn't hurt us any. We can cut it some more and go forward. And right. I, I think that's what happened with every one of those movies. Which is why, uh, going back to before Zaki joined us, why we ended up with Battle having such a tiny little budget. 
And boy, yeah. did it show. Yeah, Zachy and I have actually discussed this very thing in the past, either on his show or on, on other shows we appear together. And it, it always seems to come up <laughs> that, uh, that 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 battle had uh, you know the, the budget of a of a student fan film, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know it, but it is a valid point to make and and as a call it, what we, what, we, what uh, Paul and I were saying before Zachy is that the film uh, tends to get maligned and and set aside as the worst one uh, but it's easy to do that but it overlooks the fact that the film also actually had some pretty strong messages and some very good characters that get lost in how tiny the budget was. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, uh, you know what, what's, what's interesting for me about battle, because I certainly am, am, you know, you know me, I'm, I celebrate the entire catalog. Yeah. Um, but I can't help, but, but, you know, I, I, once I read Paul Dane's treatment, I sort of fell in love with just how dark and horrible that was. And I was like, "Oh man, I wish we had gotten this movie because it's so it's so Paul Dane. It's so in line with his sort of very nihilistic worldview." Yeah. Um, and yet, at the same time, it it takes Caesar down this path where he becomes irredeemable, and that's that's uh, the one thing I don't like about that. Let Let me ask you this, then, guys: What do you think Paul Dane would make of the current films? Well, that's a good question. Hmm. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I, I would, I, you know what? I think he would say they're not dark enough. I think because I think Paul Dane's uh, uh, sort of uh, worldview was that ape human doesn't matter. Everybody sucks. That that sort of. <laughs> yeah, I do think he gave us that in these movies. Uh, yeah. You know, he he showed the dark side of everyone with very few characters. Although, like you know, it, it's interesting. We're looking at what we finally got. You know, Caesar. Uh, was always above all, and we're talking about in, in the original movies now. Uh, you know, he didn't have a dark side in any aspect of it. Uh, but but, but not that seems Paul, to go against he, his vision of He it. did in the original version right. of Conquest ended. He was a yeah. bastard at the end of Conquest before the theaters, uh, before the oh, studios made them. Well, and, and also and, his and you original... see that very horrible cut where you hear the voice and you can't see the mouth. Right, exactly. Also also his version of Battle before the, the Conquest right. came out. Yeah, I, yeah. Ne- I never read the original version, so I can't really comment to that. But yeah, I, I think Zachy's probably right on that he, he'd say everybody's not dark enough. That they, they, They're giving people too much of a reasonable point of view in these movies i i think i, I think that the the new films posit caesar as a messiah figure and i think that is in fundamental opposition to how paul dane viewed this franchise which is that there are no messiahs yeah i think that i would agree with you on that i, I would love to keep going on and on and on and on oh this is great for, guys for hours it is great <laughs> but i I'm, unfortunately i'm under a time restriction and i apologize that i'm going to end up having to cut us out uh earlier than i should uh so we're going to have to make arrangements to get together and talk again sometime I'm all you know, for returning. Soon. let's take less than a year this time though to plan it <laughs> absolutely uh but i'm going to ask you guys the fundamental question of this show which is is it yours uh, and I'll very, very quickly, since I already talked about it with Rich earlier, give the Jaws scale. Jaws, Jaws is an absolute classic, great movie, you know, very little flaws, if any. Uh, Jaws 2, very, very solid, uh, you know, worthy of repeat viewings, but not quite at the classic level. Jaws 3, an enjoyable watch, but not a heck of a lot more than that. And Jaws 4 is a bad movie. Where does this fall on that scale for each of you? And, uh, Let's go. Uh, let's go, Rich. You first on this one. 
I think it's Jaws 1.5. I, I think it's uh, it comes pretty close to being as 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 good as the as the other two. Uh, there are some moments where I felt it spots here and there where I kind of thought it dragged a little, but I, I thought that it was, uh, I thought it was a wonderful film. I thought it was, um, it was better than rise. It was almost as good as dawn. So I would call it, uh, I would call it jaws 1.5. Zachy. Yeah. You know, as, as tends to happen so often, um, in apes related conversations, rich uh, speaks, uh, my thoughts as well. I was, as you were asking the question, I was like, well, not as good as Jaws, but better than Jaws too. So right. yeah, Jaws one point five, and I, and yeah, it, if we're ranking these films, I would say Dawn uh, with War very closely behind, and then and then Rise behind them. Which is not to say Rise is a weak movie, but that's I think in in terms of uh, the overall quality. I, I yeah. think ranking these three films is kind of like saying, well, chicken parm, eggplant parmesan, and and and, uh, and ziti. You know, which sucks. Well, none of them <laughs> suck. They're all really good, right? There you go. Uh, I'll eat any of those three. It's just you know, I you know, I would prefer the eggplant parmesan. So that that's that's kind of how I view these movies. You know, we've got we've we've got a really delicious ziti, a delicious eggplant parm, and a delicious chicken parm. Uh, it, it's kind of hard to say any of them suck, but I agree with Zachy's ranking of the three. Is I loved Rise; it charmed the hell out of me. But then Dawn elevated it to a whole new game, and War came pretty darn close to catching up with it. Yeah, yeah I, I kind of go with what uh, what you, what you said earlier when we were talking, uh, Rich. That my my favorite one of these three is whichever one is on my TV set at the time I'm, <laughs> I'm talking about it. Uh, I yeah. really, really do see significant merits to all of them and i have a tough time actually putting them in order even you know where, where you guys are, are comfortable putting the other two above rise uh, i'm not sure i i'm quite as comfortable with that because i just love the way rise developed and the way it built up as it went through uh i for me all three of them i'm in agreement with you guys but all three rank as a hot a very high jaws too i can't go as far as saying they're perfect classic movies but they are really, really high, and I could probably sit and watch any of the three any time. So, you know, and especially when you, when you consider Rise, again, just to kind of go to the comparison with it, how much less action that has in it. And when you talk rewatches, a lot of times action is a, is a real positive. Uh, but in this instance, you know, just the, 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 the development of the characters and, and the portrayals uh, really was so solid, and it's carried through even through the action sequences in the two movies that followed. And I just think it's it's really just you know one of the best trilogies out there, uh, and and it, it to some extent again it defied my expectations. It did things I didn't anticipate, and I think that's just great when they can do that in a way as positive as they did in these movies. And and I can't say enough positive things about them, even though I'm not willing to give them quite the Jaws rating. There are a lot of trilogies out there where things falter and where I find it hard to watch one of, you know, any one of the three, there might be, you know, who knows which one, but there are not a lot of trilogies where I, where I say, if any of them are on, I will gladly watch them. Uh, <laughs> the original star Wars trilogy comes to mind, even with return of the Jedi's flaws, I can watch any of those movies and enjoy the hell out of them. Back to the Future comes to mind. I love all three of them. Uh, the first three Alien films, after after which I think the whole series falls apart. Uh, but when it comes to, to to these three films, to me, uh, all three of these films to me are modern masterpieces, and uh, I don't I don't think that um, I will ever have trouble rewatching any of them. All right, and on that note, I'm going to 
calling into our conversation, sadly calling in, because I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying the heck out of this. Uh, but thank you guys both for coming on. Uh, sure. Thank you. We, you know, it's, it's, we, we will find a time sooner rather than later to do this again, and we're just going to have to pick what topic we're going to do, because at this point, Zachy and I have covered all three of the modern ones, so maybe, maybe it'll be time for us to dive in and hit the original 1968 film next time around. Oh, dude. Sign Count me up. Me in. Count me in.